Hello there. This is Pastor Spencer here for the Story of the Old Testament podcast. We're walking through the historical uh, portions of God's Word as we're walking through, learning about the uh, kind of like the backbone of the Old Testament uh, so that we can understand the, the overarching uh, ideas uh, and story and history of who God is as He reveals Himself in time and in space. We're in the book of Exodus still, Exodus chapter 25 this week through 31. This is week nine uh, for the week of February 26th through March 4th. I hope you're doing well, and I I appreciate you listening uh, this week. Um, So we're going to be, like I said, Exodus chapter 25 through 31, Psalms 41 through 45 this week. Um, reading through the Bible, reading through the scriptures. So la- we've, we talked about how, uh, right, last week, right, God brought the people to the mountain, entered into a covenant with them. Israel is like God's bride uh, that he has brought to the mountain to marry as his people. And he calls them to be faithful to him. And then after uh, making the covenant with them in chapter 24, beginning in chapter 25, through uh, Moses, God reveals to Israel and God speaks to Moses and tells him to begin to construct a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling place for God in the midst of Israel. He begins, he calls for a contribution for the for the sanctuary. Uh, he talks about the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the table for the bread, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle, the bronze altar, the court, and eventually talks about the priest garments, uh, all on and on and on. Uh, talking about how God has designed that, uh, and, and decides what is appropriate worship. This is such an important thing because this is all applicable to us as well. Uh, just a side note, um, the second commandment is you will not uh, make graven images. One of the key things about that is, is that God gets to determine what we know about him and how we know it and how he is to be approached. And here, God's people don't get to design the tabernacle. They don't get to come up with an idea about who God is or how God should be worshipped. God tells them how they are to live with him. And similarly, in our worship today, we don't get to create things that we think will be edifying to ourselves or to God. God has told us in the New Testament, um, as he has done in the whole Bible, What is the way in which we, as his people, are to worship him and the way in which we can come to know him and where we can find him and trust in him and hear him speak to us in his word? And so there's this basic principle when reading the Bible that we true worship is not simply worship that doesn't contradict the Bible. It's only those things that God tells us he wants us to do when it comes to public worship. The same, this was true in the Old Testament with the building of the tabernacle and with the whole Old Testament understanding of worship. The same is true in the New Testament. We do not bring our own ideas into God's presence because we're going to mess it up. It's actually best for us because God knows what is good for us and he reveals himself to us perfectly and sufficiently to us in the word of God and in the ordinances of baptism, the Lord's supper and in the ways that he teaches us and shows himself to us. And that's what he was doing also um, in the old Testament. 
So this week, we're going to kind of spend some time reflecting on some of these pieces of furniture in, 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 the, in God's house, the tabernacle, um, thinking about the, uh, the priests and just all of that stuff. Um, this week, let's let's meditate upon these portions of God's word because they can be. Let's be honest. Sometimes these chapters are things that we don't really want to read because they are challenging. I'll be honest; they're challenging for they're they're challenging to work through. Not because necessarily the words or anything. It's just the content can seem uh, difficult to follow, difficult to understand the importance of it. Kind of like when we're going to read through Leviticus. It is challenging. It's very challenging um, at times. But I think that if we take some time now to meditate upon these various aspects of the tabernacle and so on, we will be able to see some importance uh, and application and instruction for us, uh, for God's people back then and, and for you and me now. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is uh, we caught the, we talked about contributions for the sanctuary at the beginning of chapter twenty five, but then there there is this talk of the ark of the covenant, and God tells Moses exactly how to make this ark. Let's think about the ark of the covenant first of all. This is by Daniel Hyde, H um, Y D E, and he has a, a thing here about the ark of the covenant. Let's reflect upon this together. The ark of the covenant was the place of presence. While the Lord was present among his people in the Exodus, he localized this presence in the tabernacle for the benefit of his sinful people. The tabernacle was constructed so that the Lord would be among his people. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 25, verse 8. But in an even more specific way, the ark served as the place of the presence of God. As we read in Exodus 25, 22, There I will meet with you. On the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. Here is such a mind-blowing idea about the God of the Bible that we have to pause for a moment. The eternal God who is not constrained by the existence of time, the infinite God who is not bound by the constraints of space, the transcendent God who dwells above and beyond all time and space, and the immense God who fills all time and space condensed to the weakness or condescended to the weakness of his people and became manifest for their benefit in one locale. This God is not bound by time, but he bound himself to the time bound experience of his people. This God is not bound by space. But he bound himself to this box. He is above all creational constraints, but he bound himself to them. He is everywhere, but he was there. The psalmist set this truth about the nature of God's, Israel's God to song so that his people could celebrate him. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Psalm 113 verses 4 through 6. What a God we have. What a God has us. He chose to stoop very low and to humble himself very far for the sake of his wandering people in the wilderness. Even more, he chose to stoop and to humble himself for us in his son, Jesus Christ, and then to stoop as low as death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The fact that the ark was the place of the Lord's presence among his people brought great assurance to the people of God. This high, lofty, majestic, and resplendent king dwelt among his grumbling, complaining, bickering, and sinful people. Does that sound familiar? We too are grumbling, complaining, bickering, and sinful people. Thankfully, God is not far off in another land, but he is near to us who are sinners. 
The promise to the new covenant believer is that the Lord is near to us by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, even as Jesus promised his helpful presence. The assurance his nearness brings was described by the prophet Isaiah much later in this history of salvation. Just as God accompanied Israel when they wandered in the wilderness, so too he was with them in the days of their restoration from exile. Thus the prophet said, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, Isaiah 63, verse 9. So we have the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the major sign there of God's presence with them, right? Uh, the fact that he is not bound by time or space, and yet at the same time, he chose to reveal himself to Israel in a unique way over in this locale, at this spot, at this place. But not only did he tell God's, God's people, God tell his people to build a, an ark, he told them to build the table, table for bread, and then he told them to build this golden lampstand of pure gold in chapter 25. This is taken, I believe this is from a, a Table Talk uh, magazine, uh, but uh, I've taken it offline. It's called The Lampstand, and it's by John D. Currid. Let's let's think about this lampstand, and as we go into God's house, there's this, or or at least we're around God's God's house. There, there's there's this lampstand, this golden lampstand. What does that mean? He says this: one of the three objects to stand in the holy place of the tabernacle of Israel was the golden lampstand. God's command to make a lampstand for the sanctuary appears in, appears in Exodus twenty five thirty one through forty. The Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. And it derives from a verb that means to flame. The name menorah simply underscores the utilitarian purpose of the lampstand. It is to give light to the priests who work in the holy place of the tabernacle. In Exodus twenty-five forty, God told Moses that the menorah was to be made specially and specifically after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. In fact, the entire sanctuary and all its furnishings were to be built based on the pattern or blueprint provided from above. The tabernacle in full was to be modeled on something else. It was to be a replica of a celestial archetype that is the heavenly sanctuary. So the very specifications for the menorah were given by God directly to Moses on Mount Sinai. The lampstand was to be made of pure gold, and all of its various parts were to be hammered out of one solid lump of gold. Unattached equipment for the menorah, such as tongs and trays, were also to be made of pure gold. The lampstand and all its acumens together were to be made out of one talent of pure gold. According to Exodus 38, 24 through 31, the talent equals about 3,000 shekels, or between 53 and 79 pounds. The design of the golden lampstand was formed around a central trunk with three branches on each side, thus equaling seven branches in all. It looked like a tree. In fact, its design was typical of stylized trees depicted in ancient Near Eastern art. In the ancient Near East, the tree in art symbolized life, prosperity, and productivity. For the people of God, the menorah in the temple symbolized the same thing, the life and blessings that God had given to his people. But also, the lampstand was to remind the Hebrew of a particular tree. As many scholars have acknowledged, the tabernacle temple was planned and designed to remind worshipers of the garden in Eden as a sanctuary with Adam as its priest. In the midst of the garden sanctuary was the tree of life. The menorah was symbolic not only of life, but of eternal life for the true people of God. It not only looked back to the tree of life in the garden, but it also anticipated the tree of life that stands in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 22. 
There, in that Edenic sanctuary of the New Jerusalem, the Apostle John has a vision of the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 1 through 2. It is also significant to note that the menorah was a seven-branched candlestick. The number seven in Hebrew culture often carried the idea of completeness and wholeness. And it may be that the number was to point to the concept of Sabbath completion. As such, it may be a reminder of the seven-day creation week in which God brought the first light into the world. For the Hebrew worshiper, the lampstand thus pointed to the past when the light of God broke into the world, and in the tabernacle, it had a present application of pointing to the perfect light that God shone on the covenant community. For the believer today, the menorah is an unnecessary object for worship because Jesus proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Indeed, Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone. And in the New Jerusalem, there will be no need of a menorah, because the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Finally, the Lord in his law gave a command to Aaron and his sons to tend to the lampstand from evening to morning. This duty was to be done daily by the priest so that the lamp would burn continuously in the tent of meeting. Apart from the utilitarian usage, the continuous nature of the burning symbolizes God's everlasting giving of life and light to his people, especially in the incarnation and work of Jesus Christ. So there we have the temple, the tabernacle. We got this golden lampstand symbolizing the life and the eternal life that, that comes in Jesus Christ. And then we're told exactly about this tabernacle that was framed and designed in chapter 26. And let's think about this tabernacle. What is this tent? Why is God telling them to do this? What is the big picture thing happening here as we see this tent uh, that God is telling Moses to tell Israel to construct. This is Exodus 26. This is called the mountain that Israel moved. This is by Chad Bird. Every year, hundreds of people climb famous mountains like Everest and Kilimanjaro. Some do it for adventure, some for a challenge, and others because they're adrenaline junkies. Whatever their individual motivations might be, they all want to reach the summit. That's their goal. In Israel, once a year, one man would reach the summit of a very different kind of mountain, and he got there without going up, even a little. To explain how it worked, we need to go back in biblical history to the time of the Exodus. When Israel camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, only one man climbed to the peak, Moses. When the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, Moses entered his presence. Here the Lord gave him the two tablets of stone and spoke to him. Moses then descended the mountain to the people. At the base of the mountain were the tribes of Israel and the altar. Here the covenant ceremony took place and sacrifices were offered. From the mountain itself, however, even the slopes of the mountain, the rest of the Israelites were to keep away. Once the tabernacle was constructed, a change took place. The divine presence relocated. The glory of the Lord, which had dwelt on Mount Sinai, left that peak and dwelt in the tabernacle instead. God's glorious presence moved from the top of Sinai to the Holy of Holies. Do you see what's happening? The tabernacle has become a portable Sinai. This is the mountain that Israel moved. Here are just a few more of the obvious parallels between Sinai and the tabernacle. Where did the divine glory dwell? 
atop Sinai. Where did it move? To the tabernacle, specifically the Holy of Holies. Indeed, the Hebrew word for tabernacle is from the same verb, so that tabernacle simply means dwelling place. Where were the tablets of stone given? Atop Sinai. Where were they moved? Into the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. Where did God speak to Moses? Atop Sinai. Where did he speak thereafter? Atop the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, as Exodus 25, verse 22 says, Moreover, just as the altar was at the base of Sinai, so the altar of the tabernacle was at its base, as it were, out in front of it. Just as the Israelites were not allowed to climb even the slopes of Sinai, so they are not allowed to enter into the holy place or holy of holies. There are many other parallels between Sinai and the tabernacle, noted long ago by Jewish scholars, but these sufficiently explain the connection between the two. Israel never really left Sinai. They took it with them in his holy tent. Now, that's very fascinating as we stop real quick here, because think about it, right? Israel just takes the Sinai experience, and in a sense, it's kind of like it's kind of like it's boxed up into this tent, and it's portable now. So Sinai always goes with them. They never actually leave Sinai, in a sense. Sinai stays with them. Um, it's interesting, uh, he's, as he points out the verb, he says, um, and I may have not read this right, but he says the Hebrew word for tabernacle is mishkan, which is from the verb shikan. So that tabernacle simply means dwelling place. So he's drawing a connection between um, that word tabernacle and the verb dwelling place or, or from the verb. So that, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, but you can see that the idea here is he's trying to highlight is that um, Israel is always the Sinai people. They're always, Sinai is always with them in that sense, right? The God from Sinai and the same experience is now boxed up. If I can use that word, that, that idea is kind of boxed up into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It's a powerful thing to think about. It's explosive too, in a sense, right? Because the God who shakes the mountain will one day also, will also as Israel will experience, and we'll see a lot of that, especially in you know Leviticus, whenever the, the fire comes out and consumes Aaron's sons, or, or uh, whenever um, a plague bursts out and the fire, just, just God's uh, holiness and his wrath against sin, they experience that. They're experiencing Sinai at that moment too, I guess, in a sense, aren't they? So to return where we started, Chad Bird writes, In Israel, once a year, one man would reach the summit of a very different kind of mountain, and he got there with going, without going up even a little. The high priest like Moses would ascend to the peak of the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. When Moses went to the summit of Sinai, it was covered with a cloud. So likewise, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, it was to be covered in a cloud of incense. Their blood would be sprinkled there atop Mount Holy of Holies in the presence of the God who dwelt in the beclouded darkness, atonement would be made. All of this, however, could never really solve the problem of sin, as Hebrews starkly reminds us. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, and the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Only the sacrifice of Christ could do that on the ultimate crucifixion day of atonement. Though no mortal eyes could see it, as this priest in the order of Melchizedek hung upon that cruel altar of a Roman cross, by his own blood, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, thus securing an eternal redemption. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
We sometimes call the cross Mount Calvary. It is fitting. Indeed, this was the messianic mountaintop atonement on the Good Friday Yom Kippur. Before that sacrifice happened, however, once a year, a priestly Israelite mountain climber with incense and blood would ascend the summit of the sanctuary to enact the ritual that pointed ahead to when Christ the priest would ascend to heaven itself with his own blood as the offering for us and our salvation. So the tabernacle is this portable Sinai. So whenever you think about the tabernacle now, and whenever you, you think, right, and this is important, uh, whenever you and I think, oh, they've, they're now leaving Sinai, but remember, stay, there's a sense in which, yes, they are leaving Sinai to go to the promised land, but there's another sense in which they never leave Sinai, or maybe better said, Sinai never leaves them. And, uh, and so that's what, that's, what will be, that's what will be happening. So next I want to talk here about the altar of burnt offering. Altar of burnt offering, because that was another component uh, to the tabernacle temple worship, wasn't it? This is by T. Desmond uh, Alexander. He says this, The altar of burnt offering was one of the most highly visible features in the courtyard of the portable tabernacle and subsequently in the Jerusalem temple. Because it was situated between the entrance to the courtyard and the doorway that led into the holy place of the sanctuary, no one could come into God's presence without first encountering this sizable altar. Its central location is significant, for it reminded Israelite worshippers that access to God depended on the efficacy of the various kinds of sacrifices presented on it. These sacrifices were vital for ensuring that sinful, defiled people could approach God's holy presence in safety. To appreciate the function of the altar located outside the sanctuary where God dwelt, it is helpful to observe that the atonement rituals associated with the tabernacle temple altar originated at Mount Sinai when the Israelites entered into a unique covenant relationship with God. On arriving at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were strictly forbidden from ascending the mountain. Mount Sinai was set apart as holy, and a barrier was placed around it to prevent the people from ascending. Moses alone was permitted to go up. Anyone else attempting to do this was to be put to death. This changed, however, after God made a covenant or friendship treaty with the people. When all the people affirmed their commitment to obeying the covenant obligation, the conditions of which are given in the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, representatives of the Israelites crossed the boundary and went part of the way up Mount Sinai. As they did, they experienced an extraordinary vision of God. While their view was restricted, they witnessed under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Not only did they see something of God's majestic splendor, but they celebrated their new covenant relationship with him by feasting on the mountain. Importantly, before the people could ascend toward God on Mount Sinai, they had to offer sacrifices on a newly constructed stone altar at the foot of the mountain. On this altar, the Israelites presented to God two distinctive types of sacrifice, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Interestingly, this is the first mention in the Bible of peace offerings being made. Soon after this initial covenant sealing event, the Israelites constructed the tabernacle, a very ornate tent designed to be both a dwelling place for God and a tent of meeting where people could approach God. To facilitate this latter function, is certain Israelites were made holy as priests. Strikingly, the process by which they were consecrated resembles what happened when the covenant was ratified at Mount Sinai. Once again, burnt and peace offerings were presented to God. Exodus 29, 15-34 
The ritual for making the priest holy takes on added significance when we appreciate that for the Israelites, the tabernacle was thought to be, among other things, a miniature Mount Sinai. The three parts of the tabernacle complex represented different parts of the mountain. The most holy place paralleled the top of the mountain. The holy place paralleled the side of the mountain. The courtyard with its bronze altar paralleled the foot of the mountain. Just as the representatives of the people had to be consecrated through sacrifices on an altar before ascending Mount Sinai, the priests had to be consecrated before entering the holy place. On the basis of what is said in Exodus 29 about the consecration of the Levitical priests, the burnt and peace offerings achieved a number of outcomes. Those who offered the sacrifices were ransomed from the power of death. The animal functioned as a substitute, taking the punishment that should have fallen on the priests. When they were dabbed with blood taken from the sacrifice, they were cleansed from the defilement of sin. Blood from the altar was then sprinkled on the priests to make them holy. Finally, having been consecrated, the worshippers were to eat the consecrated meat of the sacrifice. After their initial consecration, the priests were still expected to present each day two burnt offerings, one in the morning and one in the evening. These daily sacrifices, which replicated what happened when the covenant was sealed, enabled the priests to come close to God. The ratification of the covenant at Mount Sinai was a one-off occasion, but it provides an important illustration of what must happen to enable people to come safely into God's presence. The altar burnt offering emphasizes the need for sacrificial atonement and consecration. But in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices only gave access to a copy of the heavenly temple, and these sacrifices needed to be repeated daily. Jesus' sacrificial death is a perfect once-for-all-time sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus Christ ransoms, cleanses, and sanctifies those who trust in him alone by faith. Only those who have been made holy by Christ may approach God without fear. So again, you see this emphasis here, this ha- that even, even in the idea of the uh, altar, the burnt offerings, and the way the priests were to uh, go into the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle itself, we can see, right, it's a mini Mount Sinai. Again, that, that idea is the Sinai experience of God's holiness, the combination of, of God's grandeur with his grace is something they will they experience and they're going to continue to experience uh, here throughout their journeys. Um, so we talk about the priests, however, here. We got the priest garments in chapter 28, the consecration of the priests as we've talked about in chapter 29. Let's think about this priest idea. What does a priest do and why do we need a priest? Uh, this is an article here from Chad Bird. We do need a priest between us and God? Question mark, right? So let's... Uh, Let's see what he says here about being about the priest. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but rarely did they have ears to hear. They had hands to shed innocent blood, mouths to curse those who wronged them, feet to run like mad straight away into the gaping mouth of hell. But ears to hear, they did not have. Though banished from Eden and cursed with death, still they did not hear. Though drowned in the flood of Noah or plagued by the drought of Elijah, still they did not hear. Though enslaved in Egypt, though exiled to Babylon, though warned and admonished and implored to repent, still no man had ears to hear God. No man until God became man. The word who would not be heard because the word made flesh became the word made flesh that he might hear his own word for you. 
He said to his father, Sacrifice and offering thou dost not desire, but thou hast given me an open ear. Psalm 40, verse 6. Lord, here I am. Here am I to do your will. Israel's priests were ordained with the blood of a sacrifice applied to their ear, their thumb, and their toe. For they were to hear God's word, handle his holy things, and walk in his ways. But none was perfect. All were flawed. The blood of a beast could not bring perfection because a perfect sacrifice had to be made by a perfect priest who truly had ears to hear the word divine. So there stands the word divine, the word made priest. He stands to minister in the holy place, not with blood upon his ear, thumb, and toe, but upon every inch of his body. From the thorns in his scalp, from the nails in his hands, from the spikes in his feet, from the spear in his side, outflows the blood of sacrifice, a crimson vestment for the royal priest. He hangs with arms outspread to speak the benediction Aaron's tongue could never utter. It is finished. Banished from life, cursed with suffering, drowned in the flood of wrath, made thirsty by the drought of our sins, enslaved by death and exiled to the tomb. He became what we have been that we, that we might be what he is. We do need a priest between us and God. And in Jesus, we have all the priest we need. It is finished. Death is dead. Tombs cannot imprison him. Graves cannot bind him. He lives. He lives forevermore. He lives to sing victory song into the pit of hell. He lives to open ears to hear his word and mouths to eat his body. He lives a priest forever, forever to hear his church sing, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. So, the priest there, we need that priest. And following on this same idea here about the idea of, especially chapter 29 and verse 37, where whatever touches the altar becomes holy. Let's think about this as well, this holiness that becomes contagious now. It spreads. This is uh, called Touching Jesus Makes You Holy. This is by Adriel Sanchez. In the Old Testament, the place where God chose to meet with his people was a place of contagious holiness. It was so supercharged with holiness that merely touching the very instruments of worship in the tabernacle would make a person holy. God spoke to Moses about the consecrated altar. The altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Concerning the table in the tabernacle, the altar of incense, the lampstand, and utensils, God said, You shall also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. God's holy place was filled with holy things that existed to make a holy people. In fact, after, God, after giving Moses the instructions regarding the tabernacle, God identified him as the Lord who sanctifies you. In other words, makes you holy. This infectious holiness also extended to the garments of God's priests. And when they go out into the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers, and they shall put on other garments lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. Ezekiel 49, 44, verse 19. The holy people of God could transmit the holiness of God to those outside merely through touch. These realities shed light on a familiar story in the Gospels. On one occasion, as Jesus was passing through a crowd of people, a desperate woman grabbed hold of his garment. The woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years and suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Mark 5, 25 through 26. 
When she heard that Jesus was in town, she said to herself, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Amid the clamoring crowd, the poor woman gathered enough courage to wiggle her way near the Lord and touch him. According to the law, this woman's hemorrhage rendered her religiously unclean, and whoever touched her would also be rendered unclean. When she touched Jesus, however, something marvelous happened. After 12 years of suffering in her uncleanness, her hemorrhaging stopped, and she experienced the healing power of God. Every other physician had let this woman down, but not the great physician. When she touched Jesus, she was touching the true and holy temple of God. When she grabbed his garb, she held the priestly garments of Christ that were more contagious than her uncleanliness, and the power of Christ flowed into her, healing her and making her clean. Today, there are many people who suffer a sense of defilement, impurity, corruption, and shame. They feel cut off from the worshiping community like this woman did because they wrestle with various ailments and sins that keep them from approaching the Holy One. The good news is that Jesus is still in the business of making desperately hopeless and broken people clean. You only need to touch him. For now, we don't lay hold of the contagiously holy Christ with our physical hands since Jesus has ascended into heaven. While we're waiting for him to return bodily to earth at the end of the age, we can grab onto Jesus with the hand of faith. Through faith, you can lay hold of Jesus right now, regardless of how unclean you feel, and experience the same power this woman did. In fact, her healing didn't come simply because she touched Jesus. Many in the crowd had done this, but because she touched him with faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The Christian life consists of continually coming to Jesus with that same faith and laying hold of him. When we do this, he blots out the things that isolate us in shame and fills us with his holiness. Don't let Jesus pass you by. So there we see this contagious holiness, the priest representing ultimately Jesus. And the priest there highlighting the fact that everything that comes into contact with it becomes holy and we become holy because we are now in contact with Jesus through faith. Chapter 30 now talks about this altar of incense, which is another piece of furniture in God's house. Let's think about this as well now. This is by Ian Duguid. I believe, again, this is probably taken from the, um, uh, what do you call it, Table Talk uh, magazine. Uh, So the altar of incense, Ian Duguid here. Many of the furnishings of the tabernacle had a functional purpose. The lampstand gave light in an otherwise dark enclosure, while the table provided a place on which to put the showbread. Meanwhile, the incense altar served the practical purpose of pleasantly scenting the air. These items were in many respects ordinary pieces of furniture, albeit made out of pure gold and richly ornamented as befitted the furniture of a king. All of the senses were ministered to by the daily priestly ritual. Sight, smell, and taste were addressed through the lampstand, the incense altar, and the table of showbread, while hearing was ministered to by the bells on the pride priest's garments. The whole affair was designed as a rich, multi-sensory experience for God, not because he has senses like ours, but as an acknowledgement of the goodness of each of the diverse senses he has given us. Only the very best of everything could possibly be good enough to offer to the creator of the universe. In addition to their practical usefulness and sensory attractiveness, the tabernacle furniture also served a multi, 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 what is that word? Multivalent symbolic role for God's people. 
The seven lamps on the seven on the lampstand symbolized God's blessing shining out upon the twelve loaves of showbread, which themselves represented the twelve tribes of Israel. The lampstand itself was a kind of miniature pillar of fire, memorializing God's presence with his people in the wilderness. The incense altar formed a corresponding pillar of smoke to accompany the lampstand's pillar of fire. What is more, the smoke from the incense itself, constantly rising from the altar, came to symbolize the prayers of God's people constantly ascending before the Lord. In the tabernacle, incense could only be offered by the priests, who thus served as mediators between the people and God, symbolically bringing their prayers into the presence of the Most High. This idea is expressed in Psalm 141, verse 2, where David prays to the Lord, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. A notable breach in this protocol is recorded in two chronicles when King Azariah, also known as Uzziah, tried to enter the holy place and burn an incense offering on his own behalf over the protests of the priests. In place of the elevated status he sought, he was struck with leprosy, which made him unclean and therefore unable to enter any part of the temple complex in the future. The altar of incense was also connected with the sacrificial rituals of Israel. When a sin offering was required because of a failure on the part of the high priest, the blood of the offering was smeared on the horns of the incense altar and poured out at its base. A sin offering for the community as a whole required a similar sacrifice, with the blood also being applied to the horns of the incense altar, while the blood was poured out at the less sacred altar of burnt offering. However, even these regular burnt offerings were not sufficient to deal with the accumulated pollution caused by the people's sin. In order to prevent the land from becoming unfit for divine habitation, the high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. He carried with him a portable incense burner that would provide a protective cloud of smoke under which he could safely take the blood of purification offerings and apply it to the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Although incense was an essential part of the worship of the tabernacle and temple, it is no longer required for new covenant worship. In the new temple, the church, the old priestly ritual has been replaced by what it symbolized, the prayers of the saints. Now we no longer need priestly mediators to bring our prayers and petitions to God, for we may draw near in the name of Christ, our great high priest. He is not merely our advocate, however, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As our true high priest, he has taken his own blood into the heavenly archetype toward which the tabernacle and temple pointed and applied it to the heavenly mercy seat, thereby cleansing his people forever. This is what enables us to approach God without fear, without a protective canopy of incense, safe through the sprinkled blood of Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. As the writer to the Hebrews sums it up, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. May our thankful prayers rise daily before God like incense. So there we have it there. We've got the, the altar of incense, the tabernacle, the um, sacrifices. And there we go. I think we're going to stop there. I had one more thing, um, but I'm, I think we're good for now. I think we're good. Um, so eventually we see uh, this oil, the bronze basin for uh, water um, washing. And then eventually God selects two men in particular, Holiab and Bezalel, to uh, construct these things to be the lead artisans and the ones who will come in and, and oversee the building and the construction of all these things uh, before God one last time reminds his people of his Sabbath. So 
God has told them about his place, his temple, his tabernacle. He's, they're building a house where Sinai, the God of Sinai, will live with uh, the people of Israel. Now, the question is, is well, how will the people of Israel live with the God of Sinai? And uh, we're going to see next week what happens when they get too comfortable. And, uh, and also whenever they forget very quickly who the God of Sinai is uh, in Exodus chapter 32 with a golden calf. Okay. Well, let's close with a psalm playing uh, this week. I want to play from uh, Psalm 43. This is, again, by poor Bishop Hooper. Um, and I'm going to close with that. I, I really appreciate you listening to this. I hope it's been edifying to you, encouraging to you. Um, this is a challenging week, right? Just because, like we talked about, we're going through these pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And it can be difficult for us to um, understand them. Uh, but press on. Don't realize that these things are meant for our edification too. And I uh, hope some of these things we've read um, will kind of give you some sparks. And maybe you can, as you're reading as well, you'll be able to say, oh, I can see now that basin. Why? I can see what that's for. I can see what that picture is. I can see this and that and and so forth. Um, it'll hopefully help you kind of at least be able to um, be able to put it together better and, and understand what God was saying to his people then and to us now. Well, again, thanks for listening to this. I hope to see you at church, and thank you for uh, for participating in this. And take care, and God bless. Must I wonder?
out in my own grief oppressed by my enemies why must i wander wander why must i wander wander go about in my own grief oppressed by my enemies why must i wander wander why must i Must I wonder, wonder why? Must I Send out your light, your truth. Let them guide me. Send out your light, your truth. Let them guide me. of my joy my exceeding delight and i will sing you my song then i will go to the place where you are to the source of my joy my exceeding delight and i will sing you my song to the place where you are to the source of my joy my exceeding delight and i will sing you my song then i will go to the place where you are to the source of my joy my exceeding delight and i will sing you my song 